section twenty six of a far country by winston churchill this librivox recording is in the public domain book three chapter twenty two one evening two or three days later i returned from the office to gaze up at my house to realize suddenly that it would be impossible for me to live there in those great empty rooms alone and i told maude that i would go to the club during her absence i preferred to keep up the fiction that her trip would only be temporary she forbore from contradicting me devoting herself efficiently to the task of closing the house making it seem somehow a right the final right in her capacity as housewife the drawing-room was shrouded and the library the books wrapped neatly in paper a smell of camphor pervaded the place the cheerful schoolroom was dismantled trunks and travelling bags appeared the solemn butler packed my clothes and i arranged for a room at the club in the wing that recently had been added for the accommodation of bachelors and deserted husbands one of the ironies of those days was that the children began to suggest again possibilities of happiness i had missed especially matthew with all his gentleness the boy seemed to have a precocious understanding of the verities and the capacity for suffering which as a child i had possessed but he had more self-control though he looked forward to the prospect of new scenes and experiences with the anticipation natural to his temperament i thought he betrayed at moments a certain intuition as to what was going on when are you coming over father he asked once how soon will your business let you he had been brought up in the belief that my business was a tyrant oh soon matthew some time soon i said i had a feeling that he understood me not intellectually but emotionally what a companion he might have been morton and biddy moved me less they were more robust more normal more introspective and imaginative europe meant nothing to them but they were frankly delighted and excited at the prospect of going on the ocean asking dozens of questions about the great ship impatient to embark i shan't need all that hugh maude said when i handed her a letter of credit i-i intend to live quite simply and my chief expenses will be the children's education i am going to give them the best of course of course i replied but i want you to live over there as you have been accustomed to live here it's not exactly generosity on my part i have enough and more than enough she took the letter another thing i'd rather you didn't go to new york with us hugh i know you are busy of course i'm going i started to protest no she went on firmly i'd rather you didn't the hotel people will put me on the steamer very comfortably and there are other reasons why i do not wish it i did not insist on the afternoon of her departure when i came up town i found her pinning some roses on her jacket perry and lucia sent them she informed me she maintained the friendly impersonal manner to the very end but my soul as we drove to the train was full of unprobed wounds 
i had had roses put in her compartments in the car tom and susan peters were there with more roses and little presents for the children their cheerfulness seemed forced and i wondered whether they suspected that maude's absence would be prolonged write us often and tell us all about it dear said susan as she sat beside maude and held her hand tom had biddy on his knee maude was pale but smiling and composed i hope to get a little villa in france near the sea she said i'll send you a photograph of it susan and chickabiddy when she comes back will be rattling off french like a native exclaimed tom giving her a hug i hate french said biddy and she looked at him solemnly i wish you were coming along uncle tom bells resounded through the great station the porter warned us off i kissed the children one by one scarcely realizing what i was doing i kissed maude she received my embrace passively good-bye hugh she said i alighted and stood on the platform as the train pulled out the children crowded to the windows but maude did not appear i found myself walking with tom and susan past hurrying travellers and porters to the decatur street entrance where my automobile stood waiting i'll take you home susan i said we're ever so much obliged to you she answered but the street-cars go almost to perry's door we're dining there her eyes were filled with tears and she seemed taller more ungainly than ever older a sudden impression of her greatness of heart was borne home to me and i grasped the value of such rugged friendship as hers as tom's we shouldn't know how to behave in an automobile he said as though to soften her refusal and i stood watching their receding figures as they walked out into the street and hailed the huge electric car that came to a stop beyond them above its windows was painted the ashuela traction company a label reminiscent of my professional activities then i heard the chauffeur ask where do you wish to go sir to the club i said my room was ready my personal belongings my clothes had been laid out my photographs were on the dressing-table i took up mechanically the evening newspaper but i could not read it i thought of maude of the children memories flowed in upon me a flood not to be damned presently the club valet knocked at my door he had a dinner card will you be dining here sir he inquired i went downstairs fred grierson was the only man in the dining-room hello hugh he said come and sit down i hear your wife's gone abroad yes i answered she thought she'd try it instead of the south shore this summer perhaps i imagined that he looked at me queerly i had made a great deal of money out of my association with grierson i had valued very highly being an important member of the group to which he belonged but to-night as i watched him eating and drinking greedily i hated him even as i hated myself and after dinner when he started talking with a ridicule that was a thinly disguised bitterness about the citizens union and their preparations for a campaign i left him and went to bed 
before a week had passed my painful emotions had largely subsided and with my accustomed resiliency i had regained the feeling of self-respect so essential to my happiness i was free my only anxiety was for nancy who had gone to new york the day after my last talk with her and it was only by telephoning to her house that i discovered when she was expected to return i found her sitting beside one of the open french windows of her salon gazing across at the wooded hills beyond the ashuela she was serious a little pale more exquisite more desirable than ever but her manner implied the pressure of control and her voice was not quite steady as she greeted me you've been away a long time i said the dressmakers she answered her colour rose a little i thought they'd never get through but why didn't you drop me a line let me know when you were coming i asked taking a chair beside her and laying my hand on hers she drew it gently away what's the matter i asked i've been thinking it all over what we're doing it doesn't seem right it seems terribly wrong but i thought we'd gone over all that i replied as patiently as i could you're putting it on an old-fashioned moral basis but there must be some basis she urged there are responsibilities obligations there must be that we can't get away from i can't help feeling that we ought to stand by our mistakes and by our bargains we made a choice it's cheating somehow and if we take this what we want we shall be punished for it but i'm willing to be punished to suffer as i told you if you loved me hugh she exclaimed and i was silent you don't understand she went on a little breathlessly what i mean by punishment is deterioration do you remember once long ago when you came to me before i was married i said we'd both run after false gods and that we couldn't do without them well and now this has come it seems so wonderful to me coming again like that after we passed it by after we thought it had gone forever it's opened up visions for me that i never hope to see again it ought to restore us dear that's what i'm trying to say to redeem us to make us capable of being what we were meant to be if it doesn't do that if it isn't doing so it's the most horrible of travesties of mockeries if we gain life only to have it turn into death slow death if we go to pieces again utterly for now there's hope the more i think the more clearly i see that we can't take any step without responsibilities if we take this you'll have me and i'll have you and if we don't save each other but we will i said ha ah, she exclaimed if we could start new without any past i married ham with my eyes open you couldn't know that he would become well as flagrant as he is you didn't really know what he was then there's no reason why i shouldn't have anticipated it i can't claim that i was deceived that i thought my marriage was made in heaven i entered into a contract and ham has kept his part of it fairly well he hasn't interfered with my freedom that isn't putting it on a high plane 
but there is an obligation involved you yourself in your law practice are always insisting upon the sacredness of contract as the very basis of our civilization here indeed would have been a home thrust had i been vulnerable at the time so intent was i on overcoming her objections that i resorted unwittingly to the modern argument i had more than once declared in court to be anathema the argument of the new reform in reference to the common law and the constitution a contract no matter how seriously entered into at the time it was made that later is seen to violate the principles of humanity should be void and not only this but you didn't consent that he should disgrace you nancy winced i never told you that he paid my father's debts i never told anyone she said in a low voice even then i answered after a moment you ought to see that it's too terrible a price to pay for your happiness and ham hasn't ever pretended to consider you in any way it's certain you didn't agree that he should do what he's doing suppose i admitted it she said there remain maud and your children their happiness their future becomes my responsibility as well as yours but i don't love maud and maud doesn't love me i grant it's my fault that i did her a wrong in marrying her but she is right in leaving me i should be doing her a double wrong and the children will be happy with her they will be well brought up i too have thought this out nancy i insisted and the fact is that in our respective marriages we have been each of us victims of our time of our education we were born in a period of transition we inherited views of life that do not fit conditions to-day it takes courage to achieve happiness initiative to emancipate oneself from a morality that begins to hamper and bind to stay as we are to refuse to take what is offered us is to remain between wind and water i don't mean that we should do anything hastily we can afford to take a reasonable time to be dignified about it but i have come to the conclusion that the only thing that matters in the world is a love like ours and its fulfilment achievement success are empty and meaningless without it and you do love me you've admitted it oh i don't want to talk about it she exclaimed desperately but we have to talk about it i persisted we have to thrash it out to see it straight as you yourself have said you speak of convictions hugh new convictions in place of the old we have discarded but what are there and is there no such thing as conscience even though it be only an intuition of happiness or unhappiness i do care for you i do love you then why not let that suffice i exclaimed leaning towards her she drew back but i want to respect you too she said i was shocked too shocked to answer i want to respect you she repeated more gently i don't want to think that that what we feel for each other is unconsecrated it consecrates itself i declared she shook her head 
surely it has its roots in everything that is fine in both of us we both went wrong said nancy we both sought to wrest power and happiness from the world to make our own laws how can we assert that this is not merely a continuation of it but can't we work out our beliefs together i demanded won't you trust me trust our love for one another her breath came and went quickly oh you know that i want you hugh as much as you want me and more the time may come when i can't resist you why do you resist me i cried seizing her hands convulsively and swept by a gust of passion at her confession try to understand that i am fighting for both of us she pleaded an appeal that wrung me in spite of the pitch to which my feelings had been raised hugh dear we must think it out don't now i let her hands drop beyond the range of hills rising from the far side of the ashuela was the wide valley in which was situated the cloverdale country club with its polo field golf course and tennis courts and in this same valley some of our wealthy citizens such as howard ogilvy and leonard dickinson had bought farms weekend playthings for spring and autumn hamilton durrett had started the fashion capriciously as he did everything else he had become the owner of several hundred acres of pasture woodland and orchard acquired some seventy-five head of blooded stock and proceeded to house them in model barns and milk by machinery for several months he had bored everyone in the boyne club whom he could entice into conversation on the subject of the records of pedigreed cows and spent many bibulous nights on the farm in company with those parasites who surrounded him when he was in town then another interest had intervened a feminine one of course and his energies were transferred so we understood to the reconstruction and furnishing of a little residence in new york not far from fifth avenue the farm continued under the expert direction of a superintendent who was a graduate of the state agricultural college and a select clientele which could afford to pay the prices consumed the milk and cream and butter quite consistent with their marital relations was the fact that nancy should have taken a fancy to the place after ham's interest had waned not that she cared for the guernseys or jerseys or whatever they may have been she evinced a sudden passion for simplicity occasional simplicity at least for a contrast to and escape from a complicated life of luxury she built another house for the superintendent banished him from the little farmhouse where ham had kept two rooms banished along with the superintendent the stiff plush furniture the yellow-red carpets the easels and the melodeon and decked it out in bright chintzes with wallpapers to match dainty muslin curtains and rag carpet rugs on the hardwood floors the pseudo-classic porch over the doorway which had suggested a cemetery was removed and a wide piazza added furnished with wicker lounging chairs and tables and shaded with gay awnings 
here to the farm accompanied by a maid she had been in the habit of retiring from time to time and here she came in early july here dressed in the simplest linen gowns of pink or blue or white i found a nancy magically restored to girlhood a new nancy betraying only traces of the old a new nancy in a new eden we had all the setting all the illusion of that perfect ideal of domesticity love in a cottage nancy and i who all our lives had spurned simplicity laughed over the joy we found in it she made a high art of it of course we had our simple dinners which mrs olson cooked and served in the open air sometimes on the porch sometimes under the great butternut tree spreading its shade over what in a more elaborate country place would have been called a lawn an uneven plot of grass of ridges and hollows that ran down to the orchard nancy's eyes would meet mine across the little table and often our gaze would wander over the pastures below loosened green in the level evening light to the darkening woods beyond gilt-tipped in the setting sun there were fields of ripening yellow grain of lusty young corn that grew almost as we watched it the warm winds of evening were heavy with the acrid odours of fecundity fecundity in that lay the elusive yet insistent charm of that country and nancy's of course was the transforming touch that made it paradise it was thus in the country i suggested that we should spend the rest of our existence what was the use of amassing money when happiness was to be had so simply how long do you think you could stand it she asked as she handed me a plate of blackberries forever with the right woman i announced how long could the woman stand it she humoured smilingly my crystal gazing into our future as though she had not the heart to deprive me of the pleasure i simply can't believe in it hugh she said when i pressed her for an answer why not i suppose it's because i believe in continuity i haven't the romantic temperament i always see the angel with the flaming sword it isn't that i want to see him but we shall redeem ourselves i said it won't be curiosity and idleness we are not just taking this thing and expecting to give nothing for it in return what can we give that is worth it she exclaimed with one of her revealing flashes we won't take it lightly but seriously i told her we shall find something to give and that something will spring naturally out of our love we'll read together and think and plan together oh hugh you are incorrigible was all she said the male tendency in me was forever strained to solve her to deduce from her conversation and conduct a body of consistent law the effort was useless here was a realm that of nancy's soul in which there was apparently no such thing as relevancy in the twilight after dinner we often walked through the orchard to a grassy bank beside the little stream where we would sit and watch the dying glow in the sky 
after a rain its swollen waters were turbid opaque yellow-red with the clay of the hills at other times it ran smoothly temperately almost clear between the pasture grasses and wild flowers nancy declared that it reminded her of me we sat there into the lush warm nights and the moon shone down on us or again through long silences we searched the bewildering starry chart of the heavens with the undertones of the night chorus of the fields in our ears sometimes she let my head rest upon her knee but when throbbing at her touch with the life force pulsing around us i tried to take her in my arms to bring her lips to mine she resisted me with an energy of will and body that i could not overcome i dared not overcome she acknowledged her love for me she permitted me to come to her she had the air of yielding but never yielded why then did she allow the words of love to pass and how draw the line between caresses i was maddened and disheartened by that elusive resistance in her apparently so frail a thing that neither argument nor importunity could break down was there something lacking in me or was it that i feared to mar or destroy the love she had this surely had not been the fashion of other loves called unlawful the classic instances celebrated by the poets of all ages rose to mock me incurably romantic she had called me in calmer moments when i was able to discuss our affair objectively and once she declared that i had no sense of tragedy we read macbeth together i remember one rainy sunday the modern world which was our generation would seem to be cut off from all that preceded it as with a descending knife it was precisely from the sense of tragedy that we had been emancipated from the agonized conscious i should undoubtedly have said had i been acquainted then with mr santayana's later phrase conscience the old kind of conscience and nothing inherent in the deeds themselves made the tragedy conscience was superstition the fear of the wrath of the gods conscience was the wrath of the gods eliminate it and behold there were no consequences the gods themselves that kind of gods became as extinct as the deities of the druids the greek fates the terrible figures of german mythology yes and as the god of christian orthodoxy had any dire calamities overtaken the modern macbeths of whose personal lives we happen to know something had not these great ones broken with impunity all the laws of traditional morality they ground the faces of the poor played golf and went to church with serene minds untroubled by criticism they appropriated quite freely other men's money and some of them other men's wives and yet they were not haggard with remorse the gods remained silent christian ministers regarded these modern transgressors of ancient laws benignly and accepted their contributions here indeed were the supermen of the mad german prophet and philosopher come to life refuting all classic tragedy 
it is true that some of these supermen were occasionally swept away by disease which in ancient days would have been regarded as a retributive scourge but was in fact nothing but the logical working of the laws of hygiene the results of overwork such though stated more crudely were my contentions when desire did not cloud my brain and make me incoherent and i did not fail to remind nancy constantly that this was the path on which her feet had been set that to waver now was to perish she smiled yet she showed concern but suppose you don't get what you want she objected what then suppose one doesn't become a superman or a superwoman what's to happen to one is there no god but the superman's god which is himself are there no gods for those who can't be supermen or for those who may refuse to be supermen to refuse i maintained were a weakness of the will but there are other wills she persisted wills over which the superman may conceivably have no control suppose for example that you don't get me that my will intervenes granting it to be conceivable that your future happiness and welfare as you insist depend upon your getting me which i doubt you've no reason to doubt it well granting it then suppose the orthodoxies and superstition succeed in inhibiting me i may not be a superwoman but my will or my conscience if you choose may be stronger than yours if you don't get what you want you aren't happy in other words you fail where are your gods then the trouble with you my dear hugh is that you have never failed she went on you've never had a good hard fall you've always been on the winning side and you've never had the world against you no wonder you don't understand the meaning and value of tragedy and you i asked no she agreed nor i yet i have come to feel instinctively that somehow concealed in tragedy is the central fact of life the true reality that nothing is to be got by dodging it as we have dodged it your superman at least the kind of superman you portray is petrified something vital in him that should be plastic and sensitive has turned to stone since when did you begin to feel this i inquired uneasily since well since we have been together again in the last month or two something seems to warn me that if we take what we want we shan't get it that's an irish saying i know but it expresses my meaning i may be little i may be superstitious unlike the great women of history who have dared but it's more than mere playing safe my instinct i mean you see you are involved i believe i shouldn't hesitate if only myself were concerned but you are the uncertain quantity more uncertain than you have any idea you think you know yourself you think you have analyzed yourself but the truth is hugh you don't know the meaning of struggle against real resistance i was about to protest i know that you have conquered in the world of men and affairs 
she hurried on against resistance but it isn't the kind of resistance i mean it doesn't differ essentially from the struggle in the animal kingdom i bowed thank you i said she laughed a little oh i have worshipped success too perhaps i still do that isn't the point an animal conquers his prey he is in competition in constant combat with others of his own kind and perhaps he brings to bear a certain amount of intelligence in the process intelligence isn't the point either i know what i'm saying is trite it's banal it sounds like moralizing and perhaps it is but there is so much confusion today that i think we are in danger of losing sight of the simpler verities and that we must suffer for it your super-animal your supreme stag subdues the other stags but he never conquers himself he never feels the need of it and therefore he never comprehends what we call tragedy i gather your inference i said smiling well she admitted i haven't stated the case with the shade of delicacy it deserves but i wanted to make my meaning clear we have raised up a class in america but we have lost sight a little considerably i think of the distinguishing human characteristics the men you are eulogizing are lords of the forest more or less and we women who are of their own kind what they have made us surrender ourselves in submission and adoration to the lordly stag in the face of all the sacraments that have been painfully inaugurated by the race for the very purpose of distinguishing us from animals it is equivalent to saying that there is no moral law or if there is nobody can define it we deny inferentially a human realm is distinguished from the animal and in the denial it seems to me we are cutting ourselves off from what is essential human development we are reverting to the animal i have lost and you have lost not entirely perhaps but still to a considerable extent the bloom of that fervor of that idealism we may call it that both of us possessed when we were in our teens we had occasional visions we didn't know what they meant or how to set about their accomplishment but they were not at least mere selfish aspirations they implied unconsciously no doubt an element of service and certainly our ideal of marriage had something fine in it isn't it for a higher ideal of marriage that we are searching i asked if that is so nancy objected then all the other elements of our lives are sadly out of tune with it even the most felicitous union of the sexes demands sacrifice an adjustment of wills and these are the very things we balk at and the trouble with our entire class in this country is that we won't acknowledge any responsibility there's no sacrifice in our eminence we have no sense of the whole where did you get all these ideas i demanded she laughed well she admitted i've been thrashing around a little and i've read some of the moderns you know do you remember my telling you i didn't agree with them and now this thing has come on me like a judgment 
i've caught their mania for liberty for self-realization whatever they call it but their remedies are vague they fail to convince me that individuals achieve any quality by just taking what they want regardless of others i was unable to meet this argument and the result was that when i went away from her i too began to thrash around among the books in a vain search for a radical with a convincing and satisfying philosophy thus we fly to literature in crises of the heart there was no lack of writers who sought to deal and deal triumphantly with the very situation in which i was immersed i marked many passages to read them over to nancy who was interested but who accused me of being willing to embrace any philosophy ancient or modern that ran with the stream of my desires it is worth recording that the truth of this struck home on my way back to the city i reflected that in spite of my protests against maud's going protests wholly sentimental and impelled by the desire to avoid giving pain on the spot i had approved of her departure because i didn't want her on the other hand i had to acknowledge if i hadn't wanted nancy or rather if i had become tired of her i should have been willing to endorse her scruples it was not a comforting thought one morning when i was absently opening the mail i found at my office i picked up a letter from theodore watling written from a seaside resort in maine the contents of which surprised and touched me troubled me and compelled me to face a situation with which i was wholly unprepared to cope he announced that this was to be his last term in the senate he did not name the trouble his physician had discovered but he had been warned that he must retire from active life the specialist whom i saw in new york he went on wished me to resign at once but when i pointed out to him how unfair this would be to my friends in the state to my party as a whole especially in these serious and unsettled times he agreed that i might with proper care serve out the remainder of my term i have felt it my duty to write to barbara and dickinson and one or two others in order that they might be prepared and that no time may be lost in choosing my successor it is true that the revolt within the party has never gained much headway in our state but in these days it is difficult to tell when and where a conflagration may break out or how far it will go i have ventured to recommend to them the man who seems to me the best equipped to carry on the work i have been trying to do here in short my dear hugh yourself the senate as you know is not a bed of roses just now for those who think as we do but i have the less hesitancy in making the recommendation because i believe you are not one to shun a fight for the convictions we hold in common and because you would regard with me the election of a senator with the new views as a very real calamity if sound business men and lawyers should be eliminated from the senate i could not contemplate with any peace of mind what might happen to the country in thus urging you i know you will believe me when i say that my affection and judgment are equally involved 
for it would be a matter of greater pride than i can express to have you follow me here as you have followed me at home and i beg of you seriously to consider it i understand that maude and the children are abroad remember me to them affectionately when you write if you can find it convenient to come here to maine to discuss the matter you may be sure of a welcome in any case i expect to be in washington in september for a meeting of our special committee sincerely and affectionately yours theodore watling it was characteristic of him that the tone of the letter should be uniformly cheerful that he should say nothing whatever of the blow this must be to his ambitions and hopes and my agitation at the new and disturbing prospect thus opened up for me was momentarily swept away by feelings of affection and sorrow a sharp realization came to me how much i admired and loved this man and this was followed by a pang at the thought of the disappointment my refusal would give him complications i did not wish to examine were then in the back of my mind and while i still sat holding the letter in my hand the telephone rang and a message came from leonard dickinson begging me to call at the bank at once miller gorse was there and talent waving a palm-leaf while sitting under the electric fan they were all very grave and they began to talk about the suddenness of mr watling's illness and to speculate upon its nature leonard dickinson was the most moved of the three but they were all distressed and showed it even talent whom i had never credited with any feelings they spoke about the loss to the state at length gorse took a cigar from his pocket and lighted it the smoke impelled by the fan drifted over the panelled partition into the bank i suppose mr watling mentioned to you what he wrote to us he said yes i admitted well he asked what do you think of it i attribute it to mr watling's friendship i replied no said gorse in his business-like manner watling's right there's no one else considering the number of inhabitants of our state this remark had its humorous aspect that's true dickinson put in there's no one else available who understands the situation as you do hugh no one else we can trust as we trust you i had a wire from mr barber this morning he agrees we'll miss you here but now that watling will be gone we'll need you there and he's right it's something we've got to decide on right away and get started on soon we can't afford to wobble and run any chances of a revolt it isn't everybody the senatorship comes to on a platter especially at your age said talent to tell you the truth i answered addressing dickinson i'm not prepared to talk about it now i appreciate the honour but i'm not at all sure i'm the right man and i've been considerably upset by this news of mr watling naturally you would be said the banker sympathetically and we share your feelings i don't know of any man for whom i have a greater affection than i have for theodore watling we shouldn't have mentioned it now hugh if watling hadn't started the thing himself if it weren't important to know where we stand right now we can't afford to lose a seat take your time but remember you're the man we depend upon gorse nodded 
i was aware all the time dickinson was speaking of being surrounded by the strange disquieting gaze of the council for the railroad i went back to my office to spend an uneasy morning my sorrow for mr watling was genuine but nevertheless i found myself compelled to consider an honour no man lightly refuses had it presented itself at any other time had it been due to a happier situation than that brought about by the illness of a man whom i loved and admired i should have thought the prospect dazzling indeed part and parcel of my amazing luck but now now i was in an emotional state that distorted the factors of life all those things i hitherto had valued even such a prize as this i weighed in terms of one supreme desire how would the acceptance of the senatorship affect the accomplishment of this desire that was the question i began making rapid calculations the actual election would take place in the legislature a year from the following january provided i were able to overcome nancy's resistance which i was determined to do nothing in the way of divorce proceedings could be thought of for more than a year and i feared delay on the other hand if we waited until after i had been duly elected to get my divorce and marry nancy my chances of re-election would be small what did i care for the senatorship anyway if i had her and i wanted her now as soon as i could get her she a life with her represented new values new values i did not define that made all i had striven for in the past of little worth this was a bauble compared with the companionship of the woman i loved the woman intended for me who would give me peace of mind and soul and develop those truer aspirations that had long been thwarted and starved for lack of her gradually as she regained the ascendancy over my mind she ordinarily held and from which she had been temporarily displaced by the arrival of mr watling's letter and the talk in the bank i became impatient and irritated by the intrusion but what answer should i give to dickinson and gorse what excuse for declining such an offer i decided as may be imagined to wait to temporize the irony of the circumstances of what might have been prevented now my laying this trophy at nancy's feet for i knew i had only to mention the matter to be certain of losing her End of section twenty six